This is the Pink Smoke Podcast, hosted by John Cribbs and Chris Funderberg, co-founders of the Pink Smoke website. The only question was how to pay tribute to the great Peter Bogdanovich. And fortunately, the first half of that answer came to us the guise of an absolutely lovely article written by filmmaker Bill Tech, an admirer, friend, collaborator of Bogdanovich, maker of One Day Since Yesterday, a Valentine Today All Laughed, which in our opinion at least is Bogdanovich's very best movie. Uh, the article relates Bill's experience working, uh, making One Day Since Yesterday, being on the set for uh, Bogdanovich's film Squirrels to the Nuts, more commonly known as She's Funny That Way, and just how it's impossible to be around this man and not be imbued with his special sense of art and life. It's a really special piece that we absolutely love. If you haven't read it already, please go to the website and check it out. And we've got Mr. Tech here with us. Bill, how you doing, buddy? I'm, you know, uh, bittersweet. I'm happy to see my friends, John and Chris. And I want to thank you so, so very, very, very much for, for publishing my article. You've created a site that is a place for, you know, good, solid thinking about films. And it's not bs and it's not fake trendy. It's just a, it's almost an anomaly on the internet. And I'm so appreciative that you, you were, you were kind enough to, to publish the, the piece. It means the world to me. And well, of course, it's, it's, it's thank the you. kind of thing that we are, you know, so honored to, you know, put up there because it's exactly what the mission statement is to, you know, really talk about the personal experience with these films and, uh, and you more than anyone. I mean, as soon as I heard the news, Bill, you're immediately who I thought of, you know, I immediately yeah. wanted to reach out to you and tell you, I was sorry. I don't associate anyone directly with an iconic filmmaker so much as I do you and Bogdanovich, except maybe Bogdanovich and Orson Welles, you know? It's so sweet. I wish I had one one hundredth of the talent of those guys, but you know, um, yeah, I saw to be fair. You definitely have one one hundredth of the talent of those guys. (laughs) I don't think so. No, I don't think so. I think I'm just shy of that. Just shy of that. But you know, I emailed with Peter two days before, I got I saw the news on Thursday, so Tuesday. He said, Billy, happy new year. You know, let's talk on Wednesday. We we, we stayed in very close touch. He's just one of those people that you um he was like a like a I I I mean he has a, a daughter, two daughters, Sasha and Antonia, who are grieving and shocked, and he has a wonderful ex wife and incredible friend in Louise who's grieving and shocked, and a sister Anna and all the his friends and family. So I, it's not like you say, well, I can know what that's like. I can't. But um, he was a really great friend and almost like an like an older brother um, and just a great dude. He's one of like you guys. He's one of those people that you meet and you say, these are great dudes. I, I need to be friends with these people. I, I am getting so much out of it. And so he was just a very sweet, caring man. And forget that he was a great filmmaker. He was just a, if you want to see how to just to treat other human beings and be kind and uh, uh, thoughtful and caring. And uh, so he was just, I could go on and on. So yeah, I've been pretty sad about it. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to express myself in uh, your beautiful website, which is so special. And then for inviting me on to talk about um, his uh, faves of 1939, which is a very funny um, conceit that he came up with. It was quite funny how this all came about, I think. John, can you explain the concept of the episode for for listeners? Yes, of course, of course. I was looking for a natural segue and it was just about to hit it. But we, um, 
Bill, in your article, uh, you mentioned how Bogdanovich is both the post, first postmodern director and the last of the classicists. You know that he's very much you know a transitional figure when he was making films in the late '60s and early '70s, and obviously, like a huge part of that is his love of film and cinema and like the classic American films that he grew up with and that he he loved and inspired him. And I've got here a book that he wrote, Pieces of Time. I think it came out in 1972. Two, I want to say, it was right around the time that he was, um, uh, you know, at the, at the peak of his career. You know, he had made already Last Picture Show, he had made uh, Paper Moon and What's Up Doc, and you bring up in the article even how he was still writing about these films and like thinking about films and getting people excited about the classic Hollywood films, even while he was, you know, should have been, you know, focusing on his very hot career at the time. He still, you know, cared about these things and loved loved them. So what we came up with as the way to tribute. Bogdanovich in this episode was a specific chapter in this book where he talks about the best American films of 1939 in his opinion. 39 of course is a special year for him because he was this year of his birth um, but he also talks about it obviously being a very important year for film you know a huge year for American film just in terms of all the great things that came out he also starts off by saying something that I really love which is that um, it's kind of ridiculous to do a top 10 list of the films that came out last year you should really wait 20 or 30 years before you do a top 10 for any given year, because you got to have to appreciate how it, you know, these are my words, not his, how it kind of, you know, age, how these films age and how they like wine, like a fine wine, you know, you can appreciate them more further down the road. And so that's why he decided in the seventies to write about the best films of 39. And I and think that's celebrated... interesting in the context of his career too, to let films age because so many of his movies that were greeted really hostily or indifferently on release. I think that people now, when you look back at They All Laughed or St. Jack, uh, and to a lesser extent, Nickelodeon at Long Last Love, these are phenomenal movies that were not received. As, like, I think if you know about movies, you understand They All Laughed and St. Jack are like top 100 all-time movies. I think it's I think it's not crazy to put them in that kind of category. I think they're really phenomenal masterpieces and they obviously, people writing top 10 lists in 79 and 81 were not putting They All Laughed in St. Jack on them as a general rule. They were kind of looking to use them as an excuse to finally totally bury Bogdanovich, the auteur, as opposed to seeing like, you know, like that those bottle of wines got poured out in sort of an act of critical and cultural aggression of him that's still puzzling to me when I look back. You know, I and it's and it's really hard for me to get into the mind space of the late 70s. You know, we had been talking offline and you mentioned Hooper, which I just watched uh, a couple weeks ago. And I didn't realize that director, who's the obnoxious jerk that Burt Reynolds wants to knock out, is supposed to be Boganovich. And it's supposed to be revenge for At Long Last Love, which it's just to put in your crowd pleasing hit. The villain is Peter Boganovich, who needs to be like some pretentious nerd who's dunked in the toilet. It's just crazy that that's where the culture was at with him at that point to a point where St. Jack gets kind of thrown in the trash culturally. You know, it doesn't get championed. And then 20, 30 years later, people have to dig out at Long Last Love. They have to see Nickelodeon rather than having him be these milestones of failure, you know? I think that's beautifully put. And it is... So funny and ironic. I remember uh, when I was a kid, uh, my mom had bought the soundtrack to American Hot Wax yeah. for me and for my cousin, the soundtrack to Hooper, which we'd seen in the theater and loved. 
And I, mean, I, I was like, no, I loved Hooper. I got to say, I Hooper's fucking awesome. Him. Hooper's <laughs> awesome. Except, you know, I wish it didn't give it to my man, but it's still a really, it's a blast of a movie. I, I showed it to my son recently and I didn't mention how, what a mean spirited uh, thing, how Needham had done. And, and, I, and I, we have so many movies to talk about. I'll, I'll be succinct, but it's a great example of just how vicious people were towards Peter. Um, and just the, so, you know, and the worst part is John just held up pieces of time, which is such a beautiful book. Um, when I ended One Day Since Yesterday with Louise Stratton saying, Peter wrote a book called Pieces of Time, and and she quotes from the book, I was trying to kind of make an answer song to Hooper, you know, yeah. and that was what I was trying to do was answer Hooper and say, fuck you, Hal Needham, you know. Um, and even, so after... You know, Boggy uh, put Bert into A Long Last Love and then even in Nickelodeon, which you'd think he'd appreciate, you know, hey, I'm we're trying to do something cool here. And 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 it must have been, you know, brave of 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 Bert to sign on for Nickelodeon after the, the beating that A Long Last Love took. And still, but he I think his 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 desire to be popular outweighed his any kind of humanity he might have had. And so he said, I'll just punch out this Peter Bogdanovich character and then give an okay sign to the camera. And that's the last shot in the movie. Yeah. And it blows my, they even gave him the, the book, the same title. He didn't have the grace to change the title a little bit. And that kind of thing just went on and on. When I watched um, uh, The Other Side of the Wind, I just thought, not The Other Side of the Wind, when I watched They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, uh, the wonderful doc about the making of The Other Side of the Wind, I, my takeaway, besides enjoying it very much, was, my God, Orson was really mean to this guy, and he really was kind of gracious towards Orson, even while he was being so mean to him. I have this this um, note that I found uh, in... Um, and going through Peter's things at the Lilly Library in Indiana when I was getting ready to make the film, and I'll wrap this up in a second. And the note is from Burt Reynolds, and it's right after Mass came out. And the note says, um, Dear Peter, I ran into uh, Ryan last night, Ryan O'Neill, and of course our conversation turned toward to you, and you'll be surprised to know we spoke so fondly, something like this, I'm paraphrasing, and we had to admit that you really did make a stretch. Thank you for that or something like that. And now the whole world knows that Peter Bogdanovich is back, exclamation point, with mask, you know. And I thought, what a weasel. Like, what a fucking weasel. Like, did you really? Um, you wrote him a letter because mask was a hit. But yeah. then, you know, you still managed to bury those movies and be unkind to your co-stars in both your autobiographies. And it's just it's amazing. I never heard Peter say a bad word about Bert. I think in one British article that I found, he said, I should know better than to expect, uh, you know, um, uh, loyalty from actors. And uh, <laughs> finally, after Bert passed, he said, yeah, he was a bit of a shit when he was, because, well, you know, uh, they'll love me when I'm dead ends with kind of Orson and him kind of burying Pete. Of course, they got to, you can't worry, focus on yourself. You got to focus on outside forces. And it just, um, it just reminded me of a, of a funny story. I think Peter tells it in, in, um, uh, who the Who the Devil Made It? His book uh, about directors. Um, I think he tells it in there where he's talking to an, an, a director, and I don't remember who it was. And the guy was burying him a little bit. Uh, the, he was burying this old time director, and the and uh, Peter says, "Why? Why was he saying those bad things about you?" And the guy says to Pete, "I don't know. I never did him any favors." So, you know, I think he came to expect that that's how people were. But Needham, even in his autobiography, goes out of his way to, like, 
throw a little dirt on it. Whereas Peter, I don't think he remembers who Hal Needham was. He never said a bad word about anybody. And that's way long. Please feel free to edit it. I apologize. (laughs) No, no, no. That's that's great. That's great to to hear about. And it's just uh, sorry. No, one of the things from talking to you that I really get the sense about Bogdanovich is that he was very gracious with everything that was thrown at him that life and a very complicated life and a very complicated career where even now in the past few years, there's been a pop cultural push to rebury him that I'm sure you're aware of sort of in favor of, well, Polly Platt is actually the one who did everything there's been in its, and it's, I don't know what it is about his personality that invites people to go after him. And, but every, you won't find great examples of him sort of fall into anybody's level. You know what I mean? Like every everything you tell me about him, he just responds to every anecdote you have is him responding graciously to somebody who was an incredibly vicious to him. And the viciousness may or may not have been warranted. I'm not an expert enough to know what happened with him and Orson Welles, but you can see Orson Welles being fucking vicious. You can see so many people, critics being vicious, the way they go after him, just sort of, there's a cultural viciousness towards him that I find puzzling and you don't find him responding in kind the way that there's these, you can even see just now sort of cultural meltdowns about it. You know, like as uh, being as thin skinned as, as Antonioni and Truffaut are, you know what I mean? He doesn't do that. <laughs> you know? I, I, I think the thing is that he was so concerned with both his relationship to art and people that he sort of didn't sweat the ephemera that was out there. You know, he was very committed to films. I mean, you talk about, uh, I don't like to use the term drinking the Kool-Aid, but he definitely was like, this is important. The movies are important, much more important than anything that someone might be saying about me. And also humans are important. So, you know, Polly would have been in our film, except she was very ill, but they were loving towards each other. Of course, they had difficult years. There was a divorce and so forth and all these things. She came back to work on Texasville with them. And and there's a wonderful little talk about the making of Texasville where she talks very candidly about being on set again with him and Sybil. And whether it was Polly or Colleen or Sybil or any of the women in his life, they all had such love for him, even after breaking up, even after, and it's uncommon, but it speaks to how he, how he dealt with people. And it's not just me. Um, John mentioned I, uh, me as a collaborator. And I, 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 I wish I really could put myself in that category, but certainly as a, he was kind enough to, to allow me to play in his sandbox for a little while. And some of that, it's just amazing to see all that magic. But all the people that he was in touch with, whether it was Peter Tonget, who wrote two wonderful, edited a book of interviews and wrote the definitive series of interviews with him, uh, edited one and wrote one, um, or even uh, a guy named James Kenny who found his director's cut of Squirrels to the Nuts yeah. on eBay and is going to, now that movie's going to get released because they they destroyed that movie. You'll be able to read about that. There's some articles coming out on how the movie was changed and how to kind of change it back. Whoever he kind of corresponded with, the level of like care that he had for just a, a, a anybody, I think he was very concerned with human beings and movies, but not the larger picture of like, oh, I better be nice to this guy because this guy could help. You know, he just wasn't that dude. And so um, sometimes that's a really useful quality, you know, knowing, hey, 
I should cast this person because this person's friendly with that person. He wasn't that guy. He was pretty uncompromising. And, and I, and, uh, and I thought his list of the movies of 1939 was so such a funny kind of reaction. I think initially someone had asked him for his 10 best movies of 1970 X and his reaction was to send a list of the best movies of 39. And I think that's how that chapter kind of had its birth. And it's funny. I'm sure his, his contemporaries were like, screw you. Why isn't my movie on the list? You know? And so. <laughs> well, yeah, let's he, get into the list. But I, I, there's one more thing I wanted to bring up just while we're talking about kind of what his reputation kind of ended up being in his career when it ended up going. I think that the narrative that got popularized uh, several years ago was the Easy Riders, Raging Bulls kind of idea of he was this kind of hot-headed big shot who struck it lucky with his first few films and then you know the balloon you know completely deflated and like that was that's the whole thing from him from now on it's interesting because when you think about something like someone like Martin Scorsese from that same generation who you know we recently celebrated on the website you know as being someone who's a connoisseur and a, a cinematic tastemaker but but Donovich was doing that before he was and I think the only reason that Scorsese, you know, kind of got to have this perch of cinema guy, or, you know, the guy who decides, you know, what, what is cinema and what isn't is because he continued to have success in the narrative. You know, he just kept having movies that were hits and just kept on going around, you know, going up and up that roller coaster that because of narratives like Easy Rise or Raging Bulls, he thought Bogdanovich completely lost, completely lost that track. What do you think about that, Bill? Do you think that that was kind of a hurtful sort of narrative to kind of put on him around that time? No, I think that that book picked up, you know, um, that to me, that book and my copy of not only of Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, but my copy of Down, uh, Down and Dirty Pictures, the one he did right after about kind of the new Holly, well, I guess the, the, the Miramax years. Yeah, Indywood. Um, there's just redlined with inaccuracies. I mean, there are literally, if you just fact checked it, just fact checked it versus like newspapers and periodicals and time, it's they're just inaccurate across the board, especially down dirty pictures. Whereas um, Easy Riders Raging Bulls is just a little bit more of um, people kind of talking. Uh, and but I, I think that book's hot trash. And I, I, I you know, I don't. I mean, I to say that I detest it is, and, and I thought it was such an easy characterization because he was just picking up on the zeitgeist that was already out there. I think if that book were written even 10 years ago, Peter was already starting to be reappraised somewhat. And, and I feel like that stuff like, um, the stuff about, oh, well, you know, Polly was the important one is that sort of on the periphery because she did have such a wonderful career herself that yeah, she's I, I don't- fantastically I, talented. There's very few great movies that don't bring together a dozen fantastically talented people. That's what making a movie is, is you get lucky enough to have a Peter Bogdanovich and a Polly Platt on your movie, you know? You do, but I think, you know, to me it's it's pretty obvious, but I feel like that came across. Like it came across even in the obituaries and even people looking like, oh no, but this guy went on, he kept making great, well, he didn't make three great movies. He made three movies that were very popular. He made a ton of great movies and even the minor ones, whether it was, you know, quote unquote minor, um, something like The Thing Called Love or, or Noises Off. I like those movies more because there's so much Peter in them. The, you know, yeah. uh, there's so much of the director. And then he's doing exactly what he talks about Ford doing in his documentary directed by John Ford, where he's kind of putting these little clues and codes into the movies where you could really see the auteur's life and beliefs um, 
and they all pay homage to the earlier movies in some fashion. So he started making much more complicated things. So, and I feel like the narrative is gone. I do think, you know, that the thing about Easy Riders Raging Bulls is people that are taking a cursory look at, at films in the in the 70s, you're really doing yourself a disservice reading that because it's just inaccurate across the board, not just about Peter. And um, uh, I think one of the things he did that didn't endear him to to others was he just was didn't know how to play in a certain sandbox. And you look at the USC guys, Spielberg. Yeah, I love Steven Spielberg. And all, but Spielberg, Lucas, Milius, um, even Marty, who ran with those guys, Martin Scorsese, all that whole crew, um, Randall, whoever it was. They were all college guys. They knew how to do that. And Peter was like a, a married guy with kids. So his best friend was Casavetes, who loved his movies. But he was also a married guy with kids. And they were also they were married to these fabulous women. And they were like, I'm the handsomest guy at the party. I've made the best film of the year. And uh, I'm here with the most beautiful girl and most interesting woman at the party. It's those guys are never going to get love, especially if they're also making great movies. Um, it's just there's a, a whole group of guys in a corner going, fuck that guy. Well, John and, and I, I think, were also talking about this with film critics, where if you meet a film critic, you will stop caring what they think about anything. Right. And you have to understand those film critics are at the events, are at the parties, and they see somebody like Peter Bogdanovich sweep in and it's won't they won't give. I don't think they'll give bad reviews to good movies out of spite, but I do think if there's a crack, they will take a harder shot at that crack than they would if it was like a Guillermo del Toro looking motherfucker. You know what I mean? Like they don't want to take the shot at the guys who physically and spiritually resemble them. Whereas Peter Bogdanovich is a very elegant guy and a very a kind of intellectual that's like an accessible populist intellectual, which is something that also there's always going to be a lot of tension with critics because he naturally seeds into their space with films like directed by John Ford or Pieces of Time, where you have somebody who's now more successful than you, more charming than you, more interesting than you, and he's taking your job. Of course, you love to get that shot in when he's fallen to the mat during Nickelodeon. Of course, you love being fucking Stanley Kaufman getting out your thesaurus for St. Jack. You know what I mean? Like you just love to be that dude because you're not that guy. And I think that when I look at a lot of the human interaction, especially when I look at the, the Polly Platt thing, it's like all of this audience projection onto these people who are different than what's being projected onto them. And a lot of it is trying to dredge up who Peter was as, as a person, who any filmmaker was as a person, from beyond that pop cultural shit that gets poured into their reviews in some way. I think that's totally true. And the guy was a lightning rod. And uh, that thing of not being a college guy, just being a populist guy who was still an intellectual. Yeah. It's a very weird thing. We don't really have that a lot. And when you do have it, those people tend to be lightning rods. And then on top of that, he was such a... Um, uh, uh, a fun guy who loved loved singing and loved performing and loved doing impressions and it's it's a lot. People people want you in a lane, and uh, and if you don't, if you're not in the lane, it could be weird. If remember on MTV, Dan Cortese was the MTV yeah, sports course. guy, right? Rock and if Dan Cort- Ball Jam, 
Yeah, man. If Dan Cortese was also a great filmmaker and writing about films, I'm sure people would still be mad at Dan Cortese. I mean, that's that's what happened to Lorenzo Lamas. That's why people <laughs> just too talented. What is the, is it? What is the name of those movies that he kind of directed? Goat Eater, Fire Eater. What is it? So what is it? Snake, Snake Eater. Eater. Yeah, which is the snakes not delicious at all. <laughs> He's wrong about that. It's very. I will go after. It's very yeah, I will, <laughs> I will go after Lorenzo Lamas in my book. Uh, <laughs> you leave Shauna Sands out of it, though. Um, yeah, she gets a pass. What are, uh, John, so what are, let's let's dig into the meat of this. Although I love just talking to you, Bill, about Bogdanovich. There's a few, like, off-the-record stories you've told me that, like, I can't stop using the word dreadful now that you told me <laughs> it's the best it's it's the best another funny uh, peter word he said um he, i we were setting him up uh, in a hotel for one of the appearances we were gonna go show one day since yesterday and the producers put him in a hotel he said bill is the hotel room nice is it is it spacious and i said i yeah i think it's pretty nice peter he says okay because if it's a small room it makes me feel lousy <laughs> i just thought that was so funny he's just this i don't know he's funny it is it is and it's and it makes it's, me feel lousy yeah it's a great <laughs> that story is that a, a, a filmmaker had sent him uh their films you know i can't even say it yeah, <laughs> but no, yes but when he says but when he says oh it's just dreadful isn't it he's just <laughs> funny i mean he's just a the way he talks, he's a funny guy. Yeah, I think there'd be two. I think people, if you told any part of that story, people would very quickly be able to figure out what, what film he was talking Most about. Like, so, most likely. But but the, the, the outline is he saw a dreadful film. And, uh, oh, it's just dreadful. It's dreadful. Dreadful is such a powerful word. Lousy is a powerful word. They're so out of step with the thing. He also seems like a guy who somehow, what you're saying with the USC guys and what New Hollywood was, he's out of step with them in some way. He's not like like uh, a super nerd like Scorsese, Spielberg, George Lucas, who are like super nerds getting to realize their Hollywood dreams. They're just guys that sit around and smell celluloid and are sort of like, you know, just hyperactive, you know, like that's their kind of personality. And he's not like a, a like bombastic hurricane like William Friedkin and John Milius, he's like an urbane, charming guy. He belongs to a completely different world than all of them. He's just walking down such a different path than somebody whose idea is to make Star Wars or Indiana Jones. You know what I mean? He's just he's just headed to such a different place. Like none of, imagine any of those guys making paper moon let alone what's up doc you just can't you can't even you know it's a different universe you know it's a different if a different universe and i think spielberg's the kind of the best example of it because i'm a huge fan of his movies he's and great. uh he's phenomenal what, <laughs> what they took what each of those guys took from hawks is yeah. so different and um you know we were going to talk about only angels have wings which spielberg kind of partly remade as always so i wanted to just yeah i just wanted to say that it's so different like those guys all hanging out at at amy irving's uh, or margot kidder's beach house and everybody's kind of trying to get laid and everybody's kind of doing their own like it's a little pack and Peter is going home with Sybil Shepherd to a ginormous <laughs> mansion called Copa de Oro with the name on it. And, and he's going to live across the street from some great, maybe it was Ford, I don't know, but Orson's going to live in the house. And it's just another 
and he's going to listen to Cole Porter. It, it's another world. And I, I think um, it, it is, uh, it's just amazing they were making movies at the same time. And, and Peter, by the time Marty, Martin Scorsese makes Taxi Driver in 76, right? Yeah. He, Pete's done. Pete's done. They buried him. He's done. Um, he doesn't make, he didn't make a movie in, uh, he made Nickelodeon in 76, but he didn't make another movie till St. Jack three, four, five years later. And he was never again in the, as soon as Jaws and it, he's not even on the radar. As yeah. soon as Jaws and, and Star Wars start coming you know, out. You know so who he, he, um, burnt, he reminds me of in, in that regard of being out of step in a different world is Robert Altman, who was much older than those guys who lived through the depression era and came up in TV and is just off in a different universe. And then when Star Wars Jaws happens, he's also, he's sort of relegated to that same void as Peter Bogdanovich because you're not, you're just a different guy. So goodbye, that world is dead and gone now. It's, it's a great comparison. And that's why I, I sent over to you guys privately a, an, an article from Esquire from 73, where Peter's defending, he's burying Deep Throat and he's defending and praising um, the long goodbye. And yeah. he's so gracious about Robert and everything about Robert. And it was, I, and I, ironically, he had that same thing happen where I think Robert called him a copycat uh, director. I shouldn't even, you know, I don't want to, I want to praise Peter. I don't want to bring up anything negative, but Peter yeah. said, that's, I think when Peter said that anecdote where he said, oh, well, I never did the guy any favors. Cause he was like, I was trying to say how great the long goodbye was and that they had done the wrong campaign for it, the wrong ad campaign. And I actually kind of put some pressure. They do a new campaign for the long goodbye yeah. showing kind of a little bit more. So, but in, in it, it is, I think Altman's a great example of that. And they did kind of bury Robert. He had Popeye, then he was off doing streamers and come back to the five and dime Jimmy Dean. He did get to do that big comeback. Um, but I think 90s. Robert, yeah, in the 90s, but I think because he had come from television, he kind of knew how to play the game a little bit more. Where I think Peter um, is, is an, a very kind of honest, um, and he's, it just doesn't really know how to play the game and also is very He's concerned very much with a, like you're on top or you're out of it kind of guy too. It, it really feels like people either want him to be the guy or they don't want to deal with him for whatever reason. Like it's like and, an on off switch with his career. Yes. And he also, and I, and this is the last thing I'll say was also a very much in love. He was a guy who believed in love. And I think he put romantic feelings whether it was he and Louise or he and Dorothy or he and Sybil or he and Polly at a certain time at, at the same level as making films. And I think that sets him apart too. And I think that sense of love and how important love is, is imbued in his movies. And um, I don't think he had, I think if you went through most director's relationships, they may not be as profound, whether you, it be the you're friendships not, or the romantic relationships. You're saying there was something suspect about, William Friedkin and John Moreau's marriage? What are you what are you <laughs> implying there? That that was motivated by anything other than the purest of romantic feelings and was an expression of eternal romance? I, very, it's, it's funny. I had for years, I wanted to make a doc called The Director's Company about yeah. Friedkin, Bogdanovich, um, and Coppola. And they're interesting, you know, they're, the way they went. Yeah. And the Director's Company passing on Star Wars and then Star Wars which George, had, I think Francis had walked it in. And then, for, you know, Sorcerer opening the same week. And it's a whole narrative about those guys. And, oh, that sounds awesome. Uh, it could be cool. I would add in. It would be. And Friedkin's uh, phenomenal. I'm 
making a joke here. These directors are obviously a lot of phenomenal directors that I like a lot, and I'm not tearing them down at all to build up Bogdanovich, you know? Like, obviously, I'm a huge... Altman no, yeah, but I think that there is, like what Bill is saying, there's a genuineness and a purity to Bogdanovich just in terms of his personality, where I think a lot of these other directors got swept up in the narrative where they had to have their rock star period, you know, where it's like Scorsese and Friedkin and De Palma and everybody have got to kind of be like the bad boy auteur for a while. And then you get established and then you get respect and then you become the sagacious kind of, uh, you know, veteran artist. But I think Bogdanovich knew that he was that from the beginning and was comfortable with, you know, being someone who again, quote Bill's article is a popularizer of things he's enjoyed. And someone who can like kind of take that rich culture of American film and imbue his own films with that. I so think with- also just to um to to talk about with the romance thing too, the genuineness. Bogdanovich is living the last picture show in some way, in a way that like Coppola is not living Apocalypse Now. Coppola is not living The Godfather. Steven Spielberg is not living Indiana Jones. You know, George Lucas was probably living American Graffiti. I think that that's I, it's a shame what happened to George Lucas because I think that's now become like one of the great undiscovered new Hollywood movies that that people sort of forget about it. But it's hard to find movies where you feel like this is a fundamental expression of a life they live in some way. It might be an expression of them as an artist and their thoughts. I'm not saying that that that's that those movies are not that. But like William William Friedkin is not getting in car chases and, and driving around the South American <laughs> jungle and yeah, you know, and all of that sort of thing. Whereas Peter Bogdanovich you can feel him even in one that's sort of a whiff like Daisy Miller or At Long Last Love. You know what I mean? You can feel him living the emotions of this movie in a way I just don't believe a lot of those guys are living the emotions of those movies in a fundamental, direct way. This is from my heart, you know? Yeah, so let's get into I, the movies I, that... I just totally started. agree with that. I totally agree with that. So let's get into the movies that influenced, you know, these films... Um, I'm just going to read the list and then we can, you know, of course, pepper, you know, the conversation with more great anecdotes and things like that about uh, Bogdanovich. So his top 10 American films of 1939. Number one, Young Mr. Lincoln, which he says Ford's first masterpiece. Number two, Only Angels Have Wings, Howard Hawks. Number three, Ninochka, which he calls Lubitsch's hilarious and humane satire on Cold War mechanizations. Number four, another John Ford stagecoach. Number five, Frank Capra's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Number six, Leo McCary's Love Affair, which he calls his most successful and characteristic mixtures of comedy and pathos, a touching affirmation of the picture's theme song, Wishing Will Make It So, with impeccable acting from Irene Dunn and Charles Poyer. Seven, Drums Along the Mohawk, another John Ford. Eight, Raoul Walsh's uh, The Roaring Twenties, which he calls a terrific gangster picture about the rise and fall of a big shot featuring one of James Cagney's most memorable performances and one of Bogart's least. <laughs> Nine Tough the women. but fair. Sorry. <laughs> Nine the women, George Cukor's uh, immaculately mounted version of Claire Luce's brittle, bitchy stage play, the dazzling all-girl cast. And number 10, he calls a toss-up between Gunga Dean, Destry Rides Again, Midnight, Union Pacific, Northwest Passage, and I guess there's no way around it, Gone with the Wind. So we you already brought up uh, Bill. Only angels have wings, and of the films of these that I rewatched this week, that's the one that really was like, "Whoa, I've seen this movie before, but I feel like I'm watching it for the first time." 
this is a fucking all-time great film. Uh, as far as Hawks goes, obviously, he had so many different genres and so many films that you know feel so different from each other that it's hard to like pinpoint and say that's the one. You know, I mean, obviously, you want to say it's Red River, the last picture show itself might be the great masterpiece but watching this one again is such a it's just such a great script it's such a great cast and it informs saint jack in a way where it's the expatriate american in a foreign land kind of jaded cynical about life and death spending all this time in you know the bar kind of resisting the thing that i think like you said bogdanovich you know feels like his character should do which is to be to, to head towards love to always follow their instincts towards something they love and the kind of tragedy of both Only Angels Have Wings and St. Jack, I think, is these characters won't do that. You know, these characters are allowing themselves to be just kind of stuck in this, literally in the geographically in this place, but also just sort of emotionally stuck in this rut where they don't care about anything and they have no ambitions and no real passion about anything. So it was great to revisit this one in particular, but you brought it up, uh, Bill, you, obviously you're a fan of this one. I'm a fan of, it's funny, if anyone hasn't seen the movies, if any listeners have not seen any of those movies on that list, I don't think there's a one that you could go wrong with. There's not one that I'm like, maybe Gone with the Wind. <laughs> you can skip that uh, for, for me. But everything else on the list, and it's for a reason, it's number 15 or whatever on a 10 <laughs> movie list. Um, but I think uh, that it's literally everything you need to know about filmmaking pretty much is on that list. Um, yeah, it, it's funny. We, we, we're talking about what did, what did Spielberg get out of those movies? What did Peter get out of those movies? And it's, I think he really, it, it, the Hawks thing really comes through. The, the Howard Hawks' personality really comes through in that movie in a way that um, is really touching, right? All the auteurs in all those movies, you could see the feelings and the emotions of the director without them kind of writing it on their sleeve. And I think that's a great example of it. It's exciting. It's beautiful. The miniature work is amazing. The model work, the airplane, you know, they had cameras up in the planes. I mean, it's a beautifully made movie. And it's also so interesting. It was made before we get into World War II, but acknowledging that it's going on, the movie's got it all. I love that movie. Let me ask you, Bill, of this list of films, if somebody, if you're going to tell somebody to watch one of them, one of them to connect to Peter in some way, is there a sort of Rosetta Stone movie in this? Is there one that's like that, that he's on that wavelength? He's on that, that mindset in a way that's uh, pretty tangible to you? I don't know, because he seems to have in, in taken in so much of those guys and they pop out in, in different ways in his early movies, his early, say his first three movies minus targets, which I think is pretty much pure Peter. And then in the, in the next three movies in the, 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 I guess for some, the Holy Trinity picture show and, and paper moon and what's up doc, he's borrowing different scenes from different things. After that, I really feel like he's kind of doing what those directors did, which is putting, you know, putting himself into the movies and you really start to feel Peter, you know, after that, you really, that's a whole, if he forget the first three movies, if he just had the rest, you'd be like, wow, that guy's really informed by all these different old Hollywood. I guess we, we say old Hollywood, but all these classic Hollywood choices, which one would I pick if I had to pick one? Most, mostly where I see him. I, I think that he, 
he had an appreciation for Lubitsch because of the comedy. He loved to laugh, and he was an incredibly funny guy. I mean, he was fucking funny, dude. And uh, so I'd go Ninochka, even though the Ford influence is tremendous. I mean, he has three movies from John Ford on here. I was surprised there aren't more screwball comedies on here. It's really only Midnight and Ninochka on it. And if even Ninochka, I'm certainly not hard and fast if that qualifies as a screwball or if it's not unscrewed enough to be a screwball comedy. But I was a little surprised there's not a lot of comedy on here and that how there's a huge amount of heart on these films. These are all films with a lot, a lot of heart to them. When you think of old Hollywood style romanticism, you know, it's not cornball manufactured. The reason these films endure is because they have real beating full hearts in a lot of them, you know? And that was something that made me go, oh, I can see how the women and Love Affair and Mr. Smith go to Washington connect to what Bogdanovich was doing in a way I wouldn't have without him writing it down on a list for me. You know, because I do think his movies, even something like Mask or A Little Thing Called Love, they're about the heart of it and trying to have heart in some way. And what does that mean to have cinematic heart? You know, I think that's beautifully put. There's a yeah, I, I think that's gorgeously put. I think, you know, that's a great point. And then technically, I think the mastery involved in these movies, not to skip around, but that, I mean, skip around. Only Angels Has Wings. That's fine. Yeah. But Only Angels Have Wings is like a masterfully made movie. You look at it, just technically, yeah. you're like, oh my God. And I, I, I want to bring up something else. So there's three Ford movies on here. Young Mr. Lincoln, Stagecoach, of course. And... Um, drums Along. What else? And Drums Along the Mohawk. And... Not to, this is the last time I bring up uh, Mr. Spielberg, but the fact that F Peter went back and remade, directed by John Ford, his, I believe, 1971 documentary, he and Frank Marshall went back and kind of remade it and reshot it. And now if you've seen that version of it, where he interviewed Eastwood and he interviewed Spielberg and Scorsese and all these guys, wow. it's amazing. But imagine now he's going into Spielberg's office with a video camera and he's just sitting there and interviewing Steven and they're in such different places now because he just did this like 10 years ago. But he doesn't care. He does no ego. Yeah, he doesn't go into like, oh, shit, I wish this was me. And blah, blah. He, he was um, he goes in and he's we got to tell the story of John Ford. That's what's important here. Ford. He's a romantic guy to the last. Um, and that's a wonderful movie. And it really, really shows you know, Ford's admirers and what they've taken from Ford. And in that, in that movie, it also comes across how much of Ford and Hawks and these older guys are in Eastwoods and Stevens and so forth. And you really say, Oh my God, I'm looking at these guys in a different way now too. They may have taken different things, but they're all informed by the work of these masters. And when it comes to, to, to Peter, I just look at stagecoach and you look at the cutting in that movie. I mean, it, it almost breaks so many rules. It's almost like an experimental movie. Yeah. I think uh, when I was interviewing Jesse Hawthorne Fixon for One Day Since Yesterday, he said, that's like a Maya, is it Maya Darren? Maya Darren. Darren? He's like, it's almost like a Maya Darren movie. Like, there's so many cuts. How do you do that? No movie would do that. But it works. And... Um, he also, like with experimental movies with that movie, leaves in imperfections, you know, the famous out of focus moment. But Ford just finds the right, this is the right moment 
and I'm going to leave it in even if there's a technical glitch, which is really fucking bold for 1939, where because cinema's so young, let's have this not be a technical mess. You have so many filmmakers who are still technicians who, it's a point of pride, this is in focus because this camera... <laughs> was, you know, it's that's still a chore to just have something show up on the celluloid. So just being, having that experimental mindset of like, if this cut is strange and awkward, you know, it crosses the director's line or whatever, I'm still gonna leave that in. I'm still gonna leave in in these imperfections with it because they feel like the right texture, I do think is a reasonable comparison to experimental film. And I think it's interesting <laughs> also when you when you say, you know, what's, what are these different filmmakers taking from these classic films? What is Spielberg taking from it? What is Scorsese taking from it. One of the, I mean, the obvious huge omission from this list is Wizard of Oz, right? I think it's interesting that Boggy didn't want to celebrate a fantasy film or a kid's film, a colorful entertainment. You know, it's interesting to think how Oz was regarded in the early 70s when the Bogdanoviches and the Pauline Kales and the Andy Sarises really wanted to celebrate adult movies and create adult movies. And, you know, Schrader was all Ozu and Dreyer and De Palma, all Hitchcock and uh, another thing that's notably missing is William Wyler's Wuthering Heights, which makes me wonder if Ben-Hur might have somehow disqualified Wyler from big auteur status in Bogdanovich's eyes, you know? I'm not sure if he extolled Wyler in his other works, but he's absent from his chapter in this book on uh, the big important directors, you know? He's not even a runner-up. Uh, so it makes me think about how Spielberg was celebrating... Hard agree. Yeah, <laughs> Spielberg go. was... Uh, devoted to the David Leans and how Spielberg clearly loves Gunga Dean more than anything but uh, Bogdanovich is going to put Drums Along a Mohawk over Gun Gunga Dean and make Gunga Dean just like you know it's clearly it's great but it's not really what I'm interested in a movie that you know is all adventure all excitement throw in Joan Fontaine so it's not like a sausage fest or anything like that but Drums Along the Mohawk is a film that's much more interested in these people starting a new life trying to like find their place in the society before there's any like big you know uh siege on a fort or any big uh indian attacks or anything like that that he's more interested in sort of the adult themes of these things and he's not really interested in like the fun fantasy and escapism that people like spielberg and, and lucas are clearly going to take from these movies i think that's true i think also his auteurist uh bent really comes out and you know people you know and i write about this in the article how how uh, he eugene archer uh, the late eugene archer and the late andrew saris were early um fans of Cayo de cinema and and that auteurist theory and try to really promote that in america you know peter writing the monographs on ford hitchcock and i'm forgetting um, who the other person is, but Hawks. Um, but I think his auteurs, his passion for seeing the director in the work would probably keep Weiler off the list. I don't remember what his regard for William Weiler was, but I think people like William Weiler and even David Lean, I think he, I think he felt, and you'd have to go back and read. I'm not a, a Bogdanovich scholar, like, uh, say Peter Tonget or some, uh, or the way people know about Wells and stuff. But I think that he, felt their movies were were great and they're fun but there's no i don't see the director i don't see and that's the thing he was most interested in uh a hoxian woman which he's you know repeated in his films there's a certain bogdanovich kind of woman um a certain bogdanovich kind of protagonist am i seeing the director's personality i think was most interesting to him uh that's why i think he loves sam fuller so much you know yeah. and only um, angels too is a very personal film i mean i heard him quoted on a documentary saying 
Uh, it was a personal film for Hawks because he was a former flyer. He had a brother who died flying that a lot of the things in the story are based on what actually happened to him. And he tells, uh, <laughs> he just throws out this great thing that I have to mention where he said, he asked Howard Hawks, why is it the girl always makes the first move in your movies? And Hawks responded, you ever see anything sillier than a guy making a pass? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. You know, but a lot it, of per, the personal story side of the story, obviously is in all of these films. I think you feel the director's very personal feelings in these films more so than in. I, I, absolutely. Them, <laughs> oh yeah. I, you don't see any, oh, how many directors worked on that. Right. Um, I think in, in Peter's book, who the devil made it, his chapters on, on Hawks and Ford are just wowzers. You know, you really get a sense of the guys and then you see them all over their movies. Their movies go from being this like, oh, this is about um, the cavalry. You're like, it's not about the cavalry at all. <laughs> it's about this guy's feelings about so many different things. So that's a trick to be able to get that into your films. You know, we, all three of us, you know, work on, on our own movies and, and we know how hard it is to get any part of yourself in there because there's so much to worry about. That's a different, that's a weird brain and I admire it so much. I love the Cuker choice of the women because I love George Cuker's movies. Yeah. And um, I see a lot of that movie in Pete's movies. Yeah. For sure. Oh, the J.C. Farrow character from yeah. the last picture show is basically the Rosalind Russell character from the women, right? She's stuck in this, this situation, this small town. She's bored. All she can do is create drama and, you know, excitement, you know, the way she's excited when uh, Sonny has, you know, the, the 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 injury from, you know, fighting with Dwayne over her. She loves it like that's all it is. And so that's like everything that informs the characters and the women who are just drumming up all this, this you know, go go talk to her, go confront her, you know, and, you know, that's all that they want to do is create these amazing this drama within their dull lives, I think makes me understand the JC character in Last Picture Show more than anything i think that's true i love uh i was watching uh, was it a decade under the influence that wonderful documentary i that um ted demi made yeah. and uh and with another director who's a fan i think he's an actor i forget his name which is great because it's kind of the answer doctor not to bring that up that i'm not gonna bring up that stupid book again <laughs> but it's the answer to the that one and pete's in both and civil's in both which is funny um but uh but Sybil says, I, I think I was much more like JC than I was willing to admit at that time. And I thought, well, I don't know, that's, that's interesting. Um, it's um, Richard Legravenes, that coach. Oh, yes. Oh, wow. Richard Legravenes. That's pretty cool yeah. that he made that movie. Oh, that's cool. I just watched it again. It's on YouTube. I'd recommend if anybody wants to know about the 70s from a positive point of view. <laughs> um, and Julie Christie's so good. And anyway, the... Um, Bill, can I the, ask uh, you a, a question about this list of films? Something that surprised me about it is there's a lot of adventure films on it, like Gunga Den, Union Pacific, Northwest Pack, uh, Passage, even to a certain extent, uh, Only Angels Have Wings and Drums Along the Mohawk. I wouldn't have associated him with like two-fisted adventure tales at all. What aspect of that, why do you think they show up there? What aspect of that, of his personality is that expressing or his filmmaking or whatever, do you think? I wish I had a better answer. Um, but I, I, because I, he definitely put love at the top of important things in life, Yeah, you know, for people, for his romantic partners, um, for films and so forth. I would suppose the way that adventure works into Peter's life is 
maybe in that he was very good for a while. And I know he was at managing the kind of, uh, I guess, it, Peter in Hollywood, working in Hollywood, it's almost like putting a spy into, you know, <laughs> like, a, like a Russian operative into the capital or something, because he does not have the same goals that everyone else, that, that the people around him have. Yeah, he wants to make big movies and they're popular movies and so forth. But he's also trying to, like, bring in Orson to direct St. Jack for the director's company, or he's trying yeah. to help Sam Fuller get the big red one made. And um, he's trying to, you know, he really, and he's trying to celebrate these guys. So he, I think he considered himself a bit of an operative at celebrating these movies. Maybe that that was some kind of adventure for him. But at the end of the day, he just loves a good movie. He just loves a good movie. I was lucky enough to, he shared with me, his his diary of movie going now he has the cards the index cards where he wrote yeah. for 20 years when he saw a movie what where you know what he thought about it then what he thought about it upon subsequent rewatches 20 years of index cards but um i believe it's 20 years but he also shared or 19 years but he also shared with me his diary of when he first moved to hollywood and so forth and then you know paul and i watched a he'd get the tv guide and kind of go through and like oh, i'm planning my viewing for the day and i'm gonna watch these three four movies and then he'd write down everything he thought about the movie and whatever he ate for lunch that day if he watched a ball game he was a baseball fan who knew yeah um what was his um, team what did you what, I, what was... I wish i could tell you i would imagine maybe the yanks or the dodgers can grew up in new york i don't know yeah it's got it wasn't like it wasn't like, I got to be home for the game the way I got to be home because, you know, um, Footlight Parade is showing or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but um, but he uh, um, he really enjoyed, he'd say, you know, a wonderful, you know, Ripley. he just loved adventure films, you know. Um, and his feeling, uh, he wrote about this later, was like that with the superhero movies and the rise of everything that's going on lately, to compare him to Scorsese again, he was also, you know, somewhat dismissive. He was like, well, these are the B pictures. I mean, they have a place, they're great, but they're B pictures. You go see, where are the A pictures? It's all B pictures, <laughs> you know. Um, so that was an interesting take on it. Um, I think he just loved good movies. And hey, adventure makes for a damn good movie. But what he was coming around to make them, he probably wanted to do something he felt more attuned to. And that would be L-U-V, love. Um, Obviously, the big love movie on this list is the uh, McCary. We know he was a big McCary fan. A touch of Larcy, as you mentioned. In <laughs> um, and Love Affair is definitely the most romantic film on the list. And I love Leo's comedies. Love Affair is a... It leaves me personally. Doesn't work for me, but um, but I, I love how much he appreciated Leo McCary, and I love his more you know comedy comedies. I really, really, really love those. Um, yeah. um, but he he but certainly that the, the tragicness of that movie. He didn't shy away from tragedy in his movies, right? I mean, whether it's Rocky and Mask or some of the stuff in Picture Show or even in the director's cut of Texasville, he is he's there for it. And I think you see that influence in those tragic scenes. Yeah, I mean, the Maria uh, Ospenskaya character in Love Affair, the grandmother that they go to, to visit in France. Um, that's, for me, the richest part of the film, where, you know, it's like these two young people who have this excitement of meeting each other and falling in love and their whole life in front of them kind of get this introspective from a person who has lived life and, you know, been there. And, you know, obviously we see, we see like age differences in Last Picture Show and how the older people, you know, have kind of 
been through what the young people are going through now and have this kind of retrospective sort of take on things that that they don't you know and i think that might have been like a moment that probably bogdanovich really kind of focused on in this film even more so than the terrific irene dunn who's great in this movie her ha 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 her laughing <laughs> that was very good um i think that's true john i i think it's so interesting because he's taking little bits from these films and putting them into into his work well, as every director does but i just think there's a certain something when peter does it that is 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 um it goes through his personal filter before it comes out the other side, whereas the other guys are kind of just copying. And I think Peter kind of may have done some of that earlier, and then it becomes very human and very real. The, the, I want to revisit the women again because I love George Cukor so much. I got to see Rich and Famous at the movies in 1981, maybe, or 80. Um, and I was a 12. Yeah, and, that was, and he hadn't made one for a while. Jackie Bissett, Candace Bergen. I remember telling a girl in school, I said, uh, I was like 13, but I was Max. I was the kid from uh, Rushmore. I go, uh, <laughs> I go, Look, would you like to go to the movies with me this weekend? Um, it's a women's picture. I think you'll love, can you imagine the insufferableness of a 12, 13 year old <laughs> Cuban American kid in Miami going, it's a women's picture by George Cukor. You'll that love it. And that's amazing. <laughs> no, it's weird when you're, you know, a cinephile and you're trying, and here I was like 13, <laughs> maybe 12. I don't know, but she never showed up at the movie. I waited out all, uh, all night for her, Melissa. And <laughs> later, yeah, now she's my Aww. Facebook friend, whatever. You made me wait outside that movie, like a putz. Um, you should have seen uh, the movie. Isn't that always the lesson you should have oh, gone into? I had, already, <laughs> I had already seen it twice. I was going to say that he, he, I see a lot of Cukor, and that's where I think the balance between, hey, you got three Ford movies, but not one movie. So it's part of those Ford movies, but the whole Cukor movie. And that's why his movies don't, I think, dwell in that macho bullshit. They're very, there's a very feminine energy. It's a weird time to sort of say what's masculine and what's feminine, but there's definitely the sense of the, of the, a, a female centric vibe to his films um all of them the the mat like a lot of screwball comedies they have the masculine and the feminine and the feminine and the masculine i think that that's That's for me something he takes from screwball comedies uh, uh and you know that he puts in his own films is that the kind of urbane charming intellectual he is is not a john milius you know head punching type you know what i mean he's not chomping cigars and being like the future is of UFC, you know, he's not that kind of guy. And he's also not sort of the, like, as much as I love Spielberg, deeply sexless nerd male archetype either. That's the flip side to the Milius bluster type is the, like, would you like to see my Funko Pop collection? You know, kind of, kind of masculine energy that, you know, women can have that masculine energy as well. He has the sort of urbane thing, which is why you get um, urbane male types called effeminate. And then women like Sybil Shepherd are like, no, that's a fucking man right there. <laughs> like, what did I do wrong? You know, kind of thing. So I think it is, I think it is interesting what you're saying that he sort of has an awareness of how those sort of gender identities are blurred and blurry and, and how those kind of energies that are assigned traditionally masculine or feminine um exist in people and how they manifest in people and i do think you see that in howard hawks's movies 
you know, the Hoxian woman and also the like extreme, like there's homoerotic tension in a lot of Hawks's movies, very famously. I think that that tension's there as well, that when you love another man so much as a brothers in arms, that it like reaches the intensity of romantic love, I think is something you see in Hawks's movies a lot too, that I feel in Peter's movies as well. Oh yeah, as, you know, I gotta jump in and say Only yeah. Angels, the, my, my favorite moment is when they're going out to, you know, to, to get to the radio to guide the guy down and try to get him through the storm. And Thomas Mitchell runs after Cary Grant and, like, puts his coat on him because he forgot to put his coat on. You know, this, like, brother, you know, relationship, this friendship that is so much more tender and, and real than even the romantic relationship in that movie. It's so intense. something Hosh did so well. Yeah. 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 It, sure. it is really beautiful. And the friendship stuff really comes across. And you're every, every, I agree with every point you made. Uh, and and speaking of, of women, I mean, Molly Haskell says in my doc, she says, you know, Peter was the only director in the 70s that was interested in women's ideas and women's and not everyone else was male. Uh, we're all male centric. Peter's movies are all about women, and she says it's not just the male, the woman at the center, but the supporting characters, and so on and so and, forth. And relationships you don't look at. He's interested in what is it to be a daughter, what is it to be a mother, which like that's completely out of bounds for a lot of uh, a lot of these filmmakers, you know, uh, of that same era. You know, that just like the idea of what it, Paper Moon. What does it mean to be a daughter? Mask. What does it mean to be a mother? Forget that stuff. You know, in in, in, these, in in these other filmmakers, it's just not what they're about. Not in a good or a bad way. You know, it's just not the the ground they're covering. So for me, it's that just, stuff stands out a lot. You know, and another it's really because I already brought up. You know how kind of Gung, it's interesting seeing Gunga Dean regu- relegated to the bottom of the list while Drums Along the Mohawk is one of the uh, numbered with uh, the ranked movies. Drums Along the Mohawk, you know, is not a sex. You know, does not have the sexlessness that obviously Spielberg prefers yeah. in Gunga Dean it has it's very erotic film and it also has again like love affair it has the wizened old woman played by Edna May Oliver who got an Oscar nomination for playing this weird weird character in the movie who you know says yes it was burned that's too bad <laughs> and all the great deliveries best scene in the movie is when you know they're burning her house down these two savages you know burn down her house and she's like demanding that they take her antique bed out and they stop burning her house to carry her antique bed like out downstairs. It's this absurd moment, but it's so beautiful. And she's so fantastic in it. Well, that's a great point. And that kind of appreciation of those scenes, I think, is is a, be- a beautiful thing. Yeah. And you did the air quotes for Savages, which people can't see. Yeah, I know. I'm just going <laughs> yeah. to editorialize that as well. There's two we haven't really talked about on this list much, which is his number one movie, Young Mr. Lincoln and The Roaring Twenties. I was wondering, you know, obviously for, for Bill primarily, but you too, John, why Young Mr. Lincoln at number one? Is it just that? Because that's, that's like a mission statement film for Ford in a lot of ways, even more than Stagecoach and is like a, a technically, it's a movie that blows people away. So I can understand why it's number one. Do you feel like that or Roaring Twenties connecting either of them to Bogdanovich? Because I also feel like Roaring Twenties is one of the real, a lot of these movies aren't knockouts in the way that you think of like, what's the best movie? It's going to knock you the fuck out. A lot of these movies aren't knockouts like that. Roaring Twenties is a knockout. You know, and <laughs> he, he also includes uh, young Mr. Lincoln later in another part of this book in his top 10 of all time that he'd submitted to Sight and Sound magazine yeah. the year that they asked for his top 10. So go ahead, Bill. 
No, I think Young Mr. Lincoln, I think it's the filmmaking, you know. Uh, I'd love to hear what you all think of of what personal themes he may have picked up on from that movie. Um, I asked but because I, know, I can't connect them. That's why I asked. <laughs> I think he just he just really appreciated a good movie. And boy, Young Mr. Lincoln's, I mean, it's perfectly made. And so like Roaring Twenties, my favorite thing is to hear is to hear Peter talk about Raoul Walsh. I just love it because he had such appreciation for Walsh. And I think Walsh is such an interesting character um, and he made such interesting movies. And I, it's funny, right? The, the most interesting guys and, and girls made the, some of the most interesting movies. Um, I can't tell you why. I can't tell you where I see young Mr. Lincoln and Peter's work, except, it's, uh, you know, it's technical and it's heartfelt. Maybe it's the importance of putting forward, forward something that you really believe is important. Maybe. Yeah. I'm with that. I mean, you know, I think about what do I say is my favorite movie of all time is The Burbs. Like, is that a movie that I would want to make? Would I want to make my version <laughs> of The Burbs? No, I just, I appreciate it for being what it is and something that I could never touch personally. And I think maybe there's something to that, that he has that sort of association with, you know, this kind of big biopic with big emotions and big stars. Roaring twenties is the one that definitely sticks out to me. It's like, what a weird one to include other than his appreciation of Welsh's Walsh's director, except retroactively where it's like, well, someone who had a meteoric rise and a huge fall in his own career, someone who had to sell his mansion because he had to buy back his own movie, which flopped, you know, things like that you could really appreciate he might as well have been out there driving taxis like you know uh cagney at the end of this movie where he's you know relegated to you know being just a complete loser um maybe he would have appreciated that but of course this is when he is at the, the peak of his career and so it would have been you know indeed predictive of him to say like oh this is you know the way life is so i am always kind of curious why that one kind of ends up on here it's the one that kind of sticks out for me did he have I a think fear he... of that you think no, I think he just saw it a lot. I mean, I know when he he's written about it, so I don't feel like I'm telling stories out of school. I know his father, you know, was an artist. He would he would paint till the sunlight went out and then he'd sit down and then he would play the piano for a couple of hours, you know, and that artist's life always, you know, we know I'm waiting for this next commission or I'm waiting for this next check or I'm waiting for, you know, it's stressful. And Pete saw you're, it and you're waiting to get told no. Half the time, you know, you're going to get told no, and you're just waiting for that no email for four days. And, yeah. Oh my God, story of my life. And so he, he, and so many, probably even people that are listening. Um, there's certainly people that are listening. So, you know, and still they sent him to a nice private school, and still they, you know, they, they they did their best for the kids. I think the kids never really knew, and you know, exposed him to so many great films and so many. You know, I'm talking about Peter's parents, so many great films and so much great music and so forth. And really, were the ones that turned them on to the idea that. Directors are important, but I'm digressing. I think, I know, you know, when he interviewed uh, Alan Dwan, he found Dwan was living in his housekeeper's house. And Dwan had directed, what, 400 movies? Yeah. And uh, 400 movies? And uh, here he was living with his housekeeper, and he was kind of content about it. You know, he was like, with the woman that used to be his housekeeper when he was on top of the world. I think he understood that, that things are transient. Um. Or at least he was able to observe that. I'm certainly with Wells, you know, these yeah. things are transient. I mean, I think he had enough examples of that that he probably was able to appreciate that. Yeah, I had considered, yeah, obviously knowing Orson Wells and 
seeing his own rise and fall would definitely be something that would be an impression on him. That's a, it's a brutal business. I don't know why we want to be in it. <laughs> um, Slo- I guess Slo- Slovak. Is that Slavic? <laughs> no. Been about, about a nine on the old tension meter there, eh, Rue? <laughs> Had to do it, John. Had to quote that's, the verbs. Uh, Excellent. Love it. That's, Love it. I've, I've seen that before. I've seen that. That's, that's normal. <laughs> um, uh, does it bother of you, either of you guys, that there's a movie from 1940 on this list? Northwest I, which Passage. one is it? Northwest Passage. Oh, Peter made a mistake. <laughs> yeah. Um, I can only. Bother me. <laughs> I can only. I, me at all either. I, I've never been to Copa de Oro. I thought about shooting there, but they had done that in the Robert Evans movie where they shot at Robert Evans's house and kids yeah. in the pictures. I thought, well, let's not do that. But I would I would love to see it. But I can only imagine that while he's writing this list, Sybil Shepherd is running around in the background of Copa de Oro. <laughs> I'd get the movie wrong too. Um, you know, is it forty? Is it thirty nine? I don't know. Sybil wants to go to dinner. In his We're defense, singing. in his defense, it's February, forty. So oh. it's very close to thirty nine. It's he's got. That's so. Um, that's a I, that's I, a cool movie say, though. Northwest maybe he Passage saw it in nineteen thirty nine somehow. Oh wait. <laughs> Yeah, no, I didn't. I, I hadn't I hadn't seen that one before this list. That was one of the first ones I jumped on. And it's it's cool. I was into it for sure. Um, but I did I, in watching it. I was immediately saw what year it was from when I looked it up. That's the only reason I noticed this, because, uh, you know, how do you feel about just to sort of bring it up to to the end of the episode and bring sort of a wrap up? Do you feel like he's with this list? He's trying to make a statement about American cinema and what his vision of what American cinema means. And that's why Roaring Twenties is on there to give balance to the list and the women are on there. Or do you think he's just the kind of guy who's going to pick his favorites that mean something to him? What do you what do you think is behind this list? I wish I could tell you. I I, I wonder. I wonder if it's both. I wonder if it's both in some way, you know. Um, I want these are really movies that I love. I don't think Peter Peter was definitely a genuine cat. He wasn't like I better put this on the list because I mean his whole life is about not compromising. Yeah, well he gives so, the commentary like, and I gotta include this one because it's gone with the wind. <laughs> Sorry, you know. So the one instance he does it, it has the caveat there. Yeah, and I guess he's I guess in that regard he's saying, God, I'm not gonna leave Gone with the Wind off the list. I wonder if he made that list today if he wouldn't include the Wizard of Oz. Um you know, I, that movie has its pleasures, which um, I seem in, somewhat in line with him. Um, somewhat. I don't know, brother. I think I think he, he definitely wanted to celebrate movies that he loved. And it's funny because each of these movies, even in the 10, which has so many movies in there, in the number 10 pick, they're all the directors that he goes on to write about in yeah. who, who the Devil Made It and in his other work. So clearly these were works from directors that he adored and in many cases almost seminal works even if they're not representative say with the mccary choice for example but that's the movie that came out in 39 yeah and i just i just thought i I, i'm pretty sure that this started out because someone asked him for the best movies of a certain year and his response was well here's the best movies from from 39 instead um and that i think says a lot He's saying, look, before we go into the before we let's not bury the past. He just wanted to keep it alive. Just keep the past 
I don't think he wanted to live in the past. I just think he wanted to have it coexist with the present on a timeline in a way. And that's true in his movies. So you see something like Mask, where it's a biker gang, but it's not like a real biker gang. It's a very much a movie biker yeah. gang from the forties. They're like giving blood and they're, you know, yeah. uh, uh, it's a blood drive. we got to capture the, it's ridiculous. Um, and that ridiculousness sits right next to tragedy sits next to almost this Douglas Sirkian sense of things. It's almost shot like a Cirque movie. Yeah. There's so much loaded up stuff in there. Um, but I think if anything, it's about the past coexisting with the present um, always. And that's probably what's at the heart of that, those choices. Let's, let's keep the past right next to us here on the table. It'll make whatever we're doing better. Yeah. I mean, his first one of his first, one of his first lines in a movie, if not his very first line, is all the great movies have been made. I think yeah. that's the first thing he says in Targets. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, well, that's quite a statement. Yeah. I think it's a great sentiment to, to end the episode on, too. And I think he also, his career proved it's not true. So I think that, that <laughs> that's helped. right. There are, there are movies to be made. I've also just got to throw out there, too, Bill, because the two things that I've kind of held close to my heart in this last couple of weeks thinking about with Donovich. Uh, the one is this list and revisiting these movies and seeing someone for the first time. And the other is this quote that you uh, give in your article, which I love and I think really sums up Bogdanovich's work for me. If I can quote it back to you, you already quoted the verbs for me. I'm going to quote this to you. If they all, li- if they, I'm sorry, they all laughed was going to be the way I wanted it to be. Its characters would behave with politeness and good humor. There would be grace in their sadness and stoicism in their dealings with life. Yet there would be a hope to better their own destinies. Against all odds, they would keep trying, and there would be little time for envy, jealousy, or hate. I really think that's gorgeous. And when I think about his films and these films and how they kind of flow into his films, it, it's all like a river. You know, it's all it's, it's all a hustle. Life is all a hustle. We're all swept up in it. And I think that the kind of beautiful sentiment of his films is that you got you sometimes you just got to join the hustle, and maybe it'll take you somewhere good. You know, maybe you can find a way to, to flow with it and be your own person. And they all laughed, which, if I'm not speaking out, Chris, is consensus, Pink Smoke favorite of Donovan's Oh, film. for sure. I, either um, that or St. Jack. I think I hold them basically on the same level. Yeah, but, yeah and how one, uh, one, one day since yesterday, you know, celebrates its belief that, you know, there is no envy or jealousy or hate, that, you know, we don't have that in us and that we can join this river that seems like it's only envy, jealousy, and hate, and still come out of it clean, you know, come out of it pure. That's what I love about these films. So again, Bill, just want to say thank you for joining us. Thank you for your fantastic article and for sharing all these wonderful stories about this wonderful man. I mean, it's just, it's been such a great thing in my life to kind of have access to him through you and through your film. Uh, thanks, man. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful. I mean, you, uh, grateful to you guys you talk about social media it's just this cesspool of people attacking each other and the fact that 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 you can find nice people that i would have never been able to meet and you can find people that are that are you hope you can be in their tribe and what a gift to have you guys and your beautiful site um to have you guys as friends and to have your beautiful site accessible and part of um my life and my work and i'm so appreciative and i love that you quoted that i think peter really tried to live his life like that the way he 
I really truly believe he tried to live his life that way. Um, in that quote that he said about how he wanted his characters to behave, and they all laughed. I try to behave that way. And you gentlemen are are just shining examples of, of of nice human beings, and I I think Peter would have appreciated and probably does appreciate. He's a, he would always say, "Well, that's cosmic, man." He definitely believed <laughs> in 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 signs and a larger thing than here. So I'm sure he appreciates it too. I appreciate you guys and your work and your appreciation for his movies and his list because these if anything he'd say go watch those movies <laughs> everybody should and watch his movies and watch our movie though thank you so much for doing this uh we just couldn't there's no one else we would have wanted to do this with. it means a lot to me to get to talk about peter and to talk about him with such thoughtful people thank you for having me